0: I asked the Prime Minister How good is Australia? Please explain Mate, this is just impossible Too many people were confused Uh, You bet you are, Uh, you bet I am I have always believed in miracles That's not a policy
1: Not now, not ever I mean These comments are completely inappropriate
0: I'm sure she's right
1: But I ain't spending any time on it
0: how pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Thank Taste you. of democracy, very good. Hi, Mark Kenny here, and thanks for joining us on this uh, Democracy Sausage Extra it's my great pleasure to welcome back Sophia Gaston. She is the Director of the British Foreign Policy Group, a very well-respected and influential think tank in London. Uh, and she joins me from there, where, of course, the situation with the COVID crisis is significantly more acute uh, than has been the case in Australia so far, and we're hoping it remains that way. Welcome, Sophia.
1: Welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: It's a great pleasure. Now, when we last spoke... Um, uh, the, you know, the numbers there were looking uh, very concerning in terms of uh, the rate of infections and the casualty rate or the death rate. What's the feeling now? Is there a sense that the peak has passed?
1: Well, I think everybody is hoping that uh, we're getting towards uh, the end of the peak. But what we're seeing now, I mean, certainly here in Britain, we're heading towards 20,000 deaths. Um, there is a feeling that we may achieve that miserable uh, milestone this week, Um, we're still having around uh, 800 deaths a day. um, And that's really just in hospitals. The big thing that we've been learning over the past few weeks uh, is the huge lag in reporting of deaths in care homes. And we've been starting to get some of this data through um, just in the past couple of weeks. And again, this is very delayed. And it shows that uh, care home deaths at the start of April, there were about 250. Then within that uh, first week of April, they started to double and then very quickly got up to 1,000. And there is some estimation now that care home deaths could be accounting for a third of all deaths. That is certainly the case in Scotland um, where they have been able to get that data through much more quickly than, than here in England. So, I think there there is concern that the the death toll horrific as it is is actually still not quite capturing the full extent of of the situation over here. Um we are definitely in the eye of the storm. We don't know how long the peak itself actually lasts. We saw in Italy that um the peak rather than sort of being, you know, a day where you hit the highest target was actually quite sustained. It actually uh, played out over over 2 or 3 weeks. So I think that's the thinking here, that uh, it's it's probably going to be on the other side, not a very sort of dramatic falling off of numbers, um, but, but more of a kind of gradual slide. The other big thing that's happened this week, of course, is just I think there has been a perceptible shift in tone in two ways. Firstly, we're starting to see the government, um, I suppose, fronting up a little bit more honestly about the stakes here. We had an announcement this week that we must expect that social distancing will be uh, with us at least until the end of the year. And that's been quite a sort of difficult thing for people to take stock of. Um, and the other big shift has been, and this is obviously linked to uh, the sort of uh, the arrival of the new uh, opposition leader, um, but certainly there there is a kind of more um, aggressive questioning now of the government um not just not just um politically but also through the media um around some of the potential mistakes and errors that might have been made in in the early stages of the crisis so i think definitely a drive towards holding the government to account and and i think that's probably understandable as people are seeing these numbers come through
0: It's such a marked contrast, isn't it, to the Australian experience. Uh, We have, uh, as we go to this recording, um, 75 deaths. It's, uh, um, you know, we talk about it as a tragedy. And of course, every single death is a tragedy for that person and for the families of those people. Many of them are in nursing homes, um, or, you know, some significant proportion. Obviously, the majority in in Australia's case are quite elderly. Uh, There are some exceptions but um we see in the UK just this, uh, this this terrible as you say they're staggering figures and it really uh, it must I, I I guess in Australia we look at the rest of the world we look at particularly those countries that we are so closely associated with the UK and the US they are both disasters um, and indeed as as Italy has been which has also been a, a culturally very important country in Australia's uh, in Australia's makeup um, what, what what what's the feeling about political accountability here? You talked about uh, Sir Keir Starmer, the um, the new Labour leader. Um, is there a sense of public outrage though at the government's failure to act quickly enough? the missing weeks where uh, where the severity of this was misread early on?
1: Well, things have certainly shifted this week. Um, what is unclear is how much this is what we would call a Westminster concern um, and how much this is really filtering into the public. By and large, the public support for the lockdown is near universal and the approval ratings of the government are very strong There is a little bit of evidence for for some coming down of those numbers, but it remains strong. Um, In fact, actually, compliance with the lockdown um, has vastly exceeded the government's own expectations. Um, So there is this sort of sense of the public being quite unified, but it is true that every night on on BBC News you are seeing, you know, this, this... growing problem about the shortage of equipment for our frontline workers, which is just a story that I think must be hammering home um, to, to ordinary people now. Um, there was a bombshell report um, in the Sunday Times, which is sort of the most influential Sunday newspaper. Um, on, su- on last Sunday, it came out and it was basically saying Some really, really, really crucial mistakes were made in those early, we're calling them the lost weeks, uh, at the end of February and the start of March, um, when sort of there was a sense that you could imagine things were getting very serious, but um, before any serious action had been taken on on the lockdown and, and on the procurement of equipment. So that was- and,
0: and by sorry to interrupt you there, Sophia. Sophia but the procurement of, of a procurement of equipment we're talking about PPE and ventilators, these kinds of things.
1: Yeah. So um, what's extraordinary is that it seems that many orders uh, for these for this equipment were not actually placed until sort of the middle of the Mar- middle of March, um, and towards the end of the month, some, some were only placed at the start of April. Um, Now, the big problem is that, uh, you know, this is a global experience. Everybody needs the same equipment and the same chemicals for the testing. Um, And if we didn't begin to do it till that point, understandably, there was rather a lot of competition. And then you have, by that stage, countries like America, um, with its enormous global purchasing power, able to come in and just outbid us. On everything, so there's been this huge struggle in procuring this equipment. Um, there is a lot of public, um, very kind of emotionally driven public support towards our health workers. Um, very acute at the moment. So this sense that we're not protecting them. Um, even very conservative newspapers, usually like the Daily Mail and so on, um, they have been really hammering the government on this. Um, and so Keir Starmer, new Labour leader, he had his first outing at. Um, PMQs, Prime Minister's Questions, uh, this Wednesday, um, and this was a big focus of his uh, of his outing there, and he really, really hammered Dominic Raab, who who is the sort of the acting prime minister at the moment while Boris Johnson is recovering. Um, he hammered him on, on the provision of personal protective equipment. He um, hammered him on, on care home deaths and why that data was um, really not uh, coming through quickly enough or, or, or systematically enough. And the other big story of this week linked to this PPE shortage is you do have a lot of firms, you know, manufacturing companies around Britain who were keen to do their bit, who said, we'll convert our factories into uh, cap- uh, something capable of manufacturing this equipment, um, and they're claiming that the government hasn't followed up with them. So, And there's actually some extraordinary cases of these firms actually now manufacturing to export to other countries, while our own um, medical staff don't have the equip- equipment they need. So um, Starmer's performance was seen as... Um, very, very um, capable and I think there was a huge sense of relief that um, we do now seem to have a functioning opposition.
0: It's really fascinating to compare with Australia as well because – we have such a high degree of, uh, of bipartisanship here. Uh, you know, we've had a, a rare outbreak of bipartisanship in Australia where the opposition has waved through all the emergency spending that the federal government has needed. So there have been some tweaks to legislation by agreement, uh, but, um, but essentially everything the government has pushed for in terms of spending it has got. Uh, there's been the National Cabinet where uh, normally bickering state and federal governments have, have buried all of those differences and got together and and done things. And so this is all added to a sense that government can work and that government can and does or or should deliver and is in this case delivering for Australia. You compare that with the UK and it's taken so long. I mean, we've been watching political dysfunction in the UK obviously for for quite some time. Uh, I think you were making the point actually uh, when you were last on this podcast that you're still in the five year window of the election of the Cameron government, um, and yet you've had all the political kind of ructions and and um, and turmoil that has has occurred since around Brexit and changes of government, elections and everything else, and it's all kind of culminated in in this crisis the end of Corbynism, the Prime Minister himself, uh, Boris Johnson, nearly dying in a London hospital from coronavirus, it is an extraordinary theatre. And finally, out of all of that, we end up with a very competent barrister in Sir Keir Starmer as the Labour leader. And you say, there's a sense now that there's a functioning opposition and that the government can be held to account. Quite a quite a remarkably different story from the one we've had in Australia.
1: Yes, well, uh, I remember the days when we used to sit here in Britain and look at, you know, there was this huge glee um, in Westminster watching what was seen to be a revolving door of, of um, prime ministers in Australia and all of the sort of backstabbing and these constant feuds between Rudd and Gillard and, <laughs> and Abbott. And, uh We love to think that we had a higher form of uh, politics over here. But um, I think that actually that context that you give is incredibly important because, um, you know, the British public came into this, Absolutely exhausted, and that was mm. a really important factor in Boris Johnson's sort of landslide victory at the end of last year. So, I think there kind of was a, a desire to come together as a nation. No kind of real desire to make this a political issue at the beginning, and I think that Labour, even after Sir Keir was elected, um, he was perceptible enough to understand that uh, he'd need to come in slowly. Now, I think that the publication of that bombshell Sunday Times report, um, which really was a kind of step-by-step, day-by-day, almost diary of decisions that were taken and and potential mistakes that were made, I think that has given some license uh, to the Labour Party and the opposition to kind of start to sort of put the knife in a little bit. But he Starmer is still very, very um, keen to ensure that the fundamental message he is, is um, projecting is, is one of constructive criticism um, and that they're not just sort of trying to score points and so on. He knows that there's no real easy pathway to power for Labour, but uh, that they do need to be performing a kind of democratic function. And there are genuine questions that need to be asked to this government, there have been a lot of um, very strange kind of decisions that have been made. Um, There is still a lot of confusion about some of the most crucial aspects of the planning around this. Um, So I think it's right that they're being asked, um, but some are sort of having to tread quite a careful line. The other thing that is happening is um, a growing awareness of the social costs of the lockdown. Now, A lockdown uh, in Britain and particularly in somewhere like London is experienced in a very different way to a lockdown in Australia would be, um, partly because of huge differences in lifestyle and housing arrangements. Um, You have, you know, 13 million people here, in, in London, sort of crammed into quite um, dense living conditions, all piled up on top of each other in flats. You have a lot of housing commission estates uh, where people are sort of living in very cramped quarters, um, all piled in together. So there had been this concern that there might that we were really sort of creating a, a tinderbox in in British society, and some of those social costs. There are some that are visible and some that are less visible. But you're starting to see the press um, really shining light on these, digging around about what's going on in terms of domestic violence, child abuse, um, eating disorders are on the rise. Um, you know, there's there's a whole lot of people who are not, who should be going to the doctor for, for all sorts of medical treatments and conditions and ailments who just aren't, um, accident and emergency, our sort of emergency room, uh, admissions are at an all-time low. So um, there's starting to be this other narrative developing which is saying when do you get to a point where the balance of the trade-offs of the benefits of this lockdown, um, start to be overwhelmed by the huge social costs of the lockdown, and, and I think that is the story that is going to start to become dominant over the coming weeks.
0: Yeah, that, it, that's a that's a version of a debate that's happening here as well, I suppose, in perhaps a less uh, you know, um, extreme circumstances. Happily for Australia, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I'd like to talk a bit more about Sukia Starmer and 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 also Boris Johnson and the matchup between the two, uh, which is obviously yet to come.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If only in theaters May seventeenth. Do you want to tell people the big news? or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
0: Okay, welcome back. Now, you were talking before, Sophia, about uh, Keir Starmer. The word that I'd seen um, used, an uh, adjective about, to describe his uh, performance in that first P, uh, PMQ was forensic, that he was uh, very methodical and forensic. I guess you'd expect that from someone who's legally trained, knows how to knows his way around a courtroom. Um Obviously, the prime minister wasn't there. Dominique Raab, the foreign secretary, is deputising for the prime minister, who's convalescing, as you say. Um, but what does what did we learn about Keir Starmer? There is 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 uh, as you say, the the opposition is now. Back after Corbyn, I mean, could let, let's let's put it another way. Could you have imagined Corbyn handling this situation in the way that uh, Keir Starmer did?
1: Well, absolutely not, and and that's been the problem. I mean, the huge tragedy for Britain and and British democracy over the past uh, five years is, and and it's entirely symbiotic, of course, is that you've had this Brexit drama playing out, the biggest political, economic, and social. Kind of upheaval of our settlement, um, you know, in modern history, playing out when we've had a completely incompetent um, and and at times, you know, rather pernicious opposition, um, and and that's caused some huge failings in terms of democratic accountability, and and that's not just sort of a view coming from the left. That is something that you know, even those um, on the right have have felt at times rather uncomfortable about about the situation. So so Keir Starmer, uh, you know, his, his arrival is is greeted as as a welcome boost and reinforcement um, for British democracy. He is, as you say, um, coming from the legal tradition. He, he actually used to be the um, director of public prosecution. So, you know, the highest kind of post in the land in that respect, in terms of criminal prosecutions. Um, he has a rather mixed record it's a very difficult job to come out of unscathed um it's one of those jobs that sort of you can have you can preside over you know, a hundred thousand cases, and just one of them um, makes the wrong call, or or someone's let out on parole, and, and haunts you for the rest of your life. And he does have a few of those skeletons in his um, in his closet. Um, but there's no doubt he's an incredibly uh, cerebral um, and methodical um, speaker. And I think he seemed very relaxed up there at the dispatch box. Um, Corbyn, uh, as well as sort of being rather incompetent, wasn't especially bright. So his capacity to to think on his feet was rather impeded. Um, I think what was very interesting about the matchup with Raab is that Raab, of course, himself uh, was a lawyer. So you you did have sort of lawyer upon lawyer. And and it's very interesting to think about how this dynamic uh, translates when you have Boris Johnson up there, Boris Johnson, of course, is an incredibly skillful, um, you know, uh, orator in terms of sort of uh, thinking on his feet in a theatrical way, playing to the crowd. Um, he, he's, you know, got all those wonderful one-liners. Um, but Sir Keir will always bring a sense of gravitas and seriousness, and particularly when you have these sorts of issues at play. Um you know Boris Johnson there is a chance that he may feel a little or look a little bit uncomfortable um he is less adept at doing the sort of the very serious statesman like kind of um uh rhetoric so i think it's it's something that uh, johnson's team is going to have to work very hard to work out how you kind of can uh, evolve boris johnson's image to move beyond the joker and the clown um, to, to something that can match this very, um, very centred, uh, methodical, forensic kind of questioning that you're going to get from Sokia Starman.
0: Of course, Johnson is, as you say, he's no slouch at public speaking. He's a, a, a you know, fantastic communicator in his own idiosyncratic way. Um, and he is a good parliamentary performer, as long as he's, uh, I suppose, got the microphone. So it is going to be fascinating to watch that match up. Is there a sense? I mean, he also enjoys a huge electoral buffer, really. So, as you said before, Labour's path to victory anytime soon seems, um, ex, you know, extraordinarily difficult. And that's the situation that Keir Starmer has, um, you know, inherited that has been, he's been promoted to. It's going to be fascinating to see how that uh, plays out. What about Johnson? Let's t- turn to him. I mean, as you say, he's not back yet, but, um, when he does come back it seems to me there's there's never been a crisis like this if you know if you exclude the second world war there's never been a crisis like this where so many britons are dying uh, where the, uh, the the rent to the social fabric is so fundamental and yet the uh, the, the labor opposition even with a good leader uh, would struggle i think from my reading of it to uh, to be competitive How much blame will attach to Boris Johnson for his handling of it, and conversely, how much sympathy attached to him for actually getting the virus himself?
1: Well, I think that it's, again, coming back to this point of just the degree of exhaustion in British politics at the moment. I think there is no sense. I mean, people can be angry, people want the government to be held to account, but you know, when you've had four or five years of just constant, you know, people out protesting in the streets and, and, just complete. You know, every day is is a spectacle and shock and horror and gasping. Um, you know, and you have to remember as well. This is the British character, which is sort of um, this is all rather unfamiliar stuff. Um, I think the hangover from all of that will last for quite a long time, and I think that will fall in Johnson's favour. Um, we know there will be a big inquiry on the other end of this. Um, that could take years. Um, certainly it's, uh, it is something that we can already tell is going to lead fingers to be pointed everywhere in all directions. And I think actually the medical and scientific advisors, one of the things that we're learning more and more is that they themselves have been very divided, um, and have been contradicting one another, and so you know, I think in a way there will be some get-out uh, clauses for the government themselves. I think
0: it's- that's a really interesting point, Sophia, because I, I, I read somewhere that um, one of the reasons you, you said before, for example, that there was a huge public support for the lockdown, and yet I read somewhere some time ago that one of the reasons that the medical advisers had not advised Boris Johnson and the health secretary and others to go down the path of a serious lockdown was the belief in the uh, top medical fraternity, uh, at least the one advising the government, that the British public just wouldn't do it. They wouldn't buy it. They wouldn't be part of it. That turns out to be fundamentally wrong.
1: Yeah so there there was a lot of um behavioral psychology playing into uh the early stages of this pandemic handling here in Britain and that's actually something that has been taking place uh for some time that that sort of came in the Blair era um and then sort of carried over um through Brown into Cameron and so on because Um, there's been a sort of cult of behavioral psychology in in the British government and and you know I think it it can be credited with some um, really impressive sort of public policy wins there Um, so they sort of rather instinctively brought uh, these people in at the beginning Um, and certainly we know now that uh, even in cabinet there was a an expectation that they were looking at about 75% um, uh, of adherence to the lockdown. That, that's where they were thinking this would go. And and that was what was needed as the minimum um, to start to make a difference and keep the health system uh, at or below capacity. What they've actually found is that compliance is more like in the 90s Um, so they've been just blown away by how well people have been responding to lockdown. Um, That said, I don't think it's interminable. I think we are going to get to a point um, probably in the next three weeks uh, where, as I say, these mounting social costs, which are becoming more visible, um, they start to become a little bit more intolerable. Um, There are people, I mean, you're starting to see daily stories in the press now um, of people, for example, whose cancer treatment is on hold, um, people who are losing out at their one opportunity to um, undergo fertility treatment—you um, know—all of these very personal and heart-wrenching stories. I think the more and more they start to build um, people's instincts towards relaxing the lockdown, will um, will start to grow. But I do think coming back to Johnson um, and how he comes out of all of this, in one way, you know. Johnson wasn't you know, he wasn't dissimilar to to Corbyn and his team in, in this kind of populist element where they both really wanted to overhaul fundamentally the existing system. And and this is particularly for Johnson being driven by his advisor Dominic Cummings, um, who does want to, you know, blow up Whitehall. That's been his sort of um his his mission. And this pandemic actually brings, necessitates a kind of full rethink of our you know, economic and social settlement. Um, so th- there'd been the opportunity for this provided by the Brexit vote and, and certainly necessitated on the economic side. We have to rethink our economic model. And you started to see this playing into Johnson's core strategy, which is lev- called levelling up, which is about kind of Um, sort of dampening regional inequalities, setting up new manufacturing hubs around the country. I can see this pandemic really providing the grist to the mill of that. You know, we're going to be, the the idea of us, you know, paying down our deficit or let alone achieving a surplus, um, you know, we're going to need a fundamental reset And there are big, big structural problems with the British economy, like a productivity problem. Um, So I can see in the scorched earth of all of this, Johnson really leaning into this idea of a a fundamental reset. And, you know, whether or not that succeeds, uh, he will be judged on that. But I can certainly see in the first instance um, that he and his team around him will be seeing an opportunity.
0: Sophia Gaston, it's been terrific talking to you again. It's always brilliant to hear your views, so well informed and so articulate. And uh, uh, all the best for um, the situation as it unfolds. There, we watch with with great interest, and I guess we watch from a position where, uh, happily, our situation in Australia isn't anywhere near as severe. But as you say, we are heading into the winter, and um, uh, you know, one of the lessons that's becoming obvious from places like Singapore is that. Um, if you take your foot off the brake and you don't have social distancing uh, continuing, then, uh, you know, there are vulnerabilities in this. And until there's either a a treatment that renders this virus non-lethal or a cure, you know, a a, a vaccine, uh, then um, I guess uh, uh, it's going to be a very difficult situation and have massive social and economic consequences, as we've just been discussing. So thank you for joining us again, Sophia.
1: Thanks very much.
0: And thank you for joining us on Democracy Sausage Extra. Uh, We'll be back with our normal podcast on Monday. It comes out late Monday or early Tuesday. And we'll look forward to talking to you then. Bye for now.